Hey guys, welcome to episode 152 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we hope all is well with you. And like always at the top of the show, we just want to send out all of our thank yous. Thank you to anyone who's listening, who's new or an old listener, anyone who's left reviews or told a friend. We appreciate that so much because that helps us more than anything. Yeah, the algorithms always help. And also just to get our name out there is also really important. Yes. And anyone who joined Patreon since the last episode, we're going to, of course, thank you all by name at the end of the episode. So please stay tuned if that's you or if you just want to hear. Okay, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Always. Shenandoah Valley, Pennsylvania is a town that is proud of its history. And the residents of that town do have a lot to be proud of. According to the borough of Shenandoah's website, the city sits on top of the largest known anthracite coal vein, something that generated great wealth to the area. Immigrants from all over Europe came to settle in the town so they could work difficult and long shifts in the coal mines and provide a better life for their families. Because of its large coal deposits, the town was the one in the state to have all three depots from the major railroad companies. So it was a pretty big deal and it was a very known town. So that's where that pride comes from. And while the men worked in the mines, the women of Shenandoah worked in the textile industry, rivaling the production of other prominent cities in the garment industry. By the 1930s, Shenandoah boasted that 22 nationalities and 22 varying religious denominations lived within its borders. I mean, how perfect is that? It's like the American dream. Yeah, it's like the melting pot where everyone's going to just make a new life, the American dream for themselves. I mean, I think we all want that, right? Right. And that's, you know, how the town was founded. And and that's what and how it came to prominence by like being on the backs of immigrants. But that dreamlike existence did not last long, as the coal and iron companies dried up, as did the garment industry during the Great Depression. And the towns that hung on with white fingertips to the last remnants of the coal industry had to eventually let go in the 1970s. In every census the United States has had since 1921, the population of Shenandoah has fallen by an average That's a lot. Yes, and people are leaving in droves. The 2010 census reported that 28.9% of the housing units and homes in the town were vacant. I mean, I kind of feel like that's what happens when you had industry or places who had industry and then it kind of went elsewhere, whether it be overseas or just stopped completely. Like, those towns can't exist because it's nothing's happening there anymore. And there does seem to be a theme because we've covered many towns like this before that were a part of the great coal mining industry or or some kind of industry was booming and the town was doing amazing. And then when that industry dries up for various different reasons, the town is left almost like a ghost town and it becomes this like seed or hotbed of resentment and anger and depression and we see horrific crimes come out of towns like that yeah i mean think about it this way if you had property let's say you own a you know a house there 
and you know you think everything's wonderful you want a home everything's great you know uh, let's say your house is paid off and then all of a sudden industry leaves and everyone leaves you don't really have anything no. your house has almost it's almost like the house value is zero and you no longer have an income because yeah. you work there so everything that you have you know almost essentially by night is gone and that leads to poverty According to the same census, 20.1% of the population of Shenandoah was living below the poverty line. And that was 2010. And I'm sure that number is either the same or greater in the 2020 census. But that information wasn't available. That's very sad. According to a resident of the town that gave an interview for the local news, I think he put it perfectly by saying, you either stay because you don't have the money to leave or you're hanging on to what used to be. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. At around 11.40 p.m. on Saturday, July 12, 2008, several 911 calls came into a dispatch center for Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. A lot of information was coming in all at once. It had already been a busy night because earlier the town of Shenandoah had hosted a Polish-American block party. Now, these block parties are like street fairs because they're actually, there are a few manufacturing um, places within Shenandoah in that area, especially of Polish foods, like Mrs. T's pierogies. I love them. I know. So good. I know that's like bad. Everyone always says where I teach, there's like a town that's like known for like being like Polish, like a lot of Polish people live in the town, so they make pierogies. So like a lot of the students sometimes give like gifts of pierogies, and they're so, so good. So I know it's kind of bad to say the frozen pierogies. True. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, um, What's what's the word I'm looking for? It's um it's an alternative when you can't get the fresh yeah, stuff. It's like the a real frozen stuff. Italian yeah. meatball. Yeah. <laughs> but it's actually funny because I um growing up when I lived in the city where I lived, there was um something of equivalence to this. It was um they would block off the entire street. I'm talking blocks and blocks. It yeah. was like a I guess you it was like an Italian um like a San Gennaro festival? Yes, pretty much. It's yeah. like a mini San Gennaro. And it was it was the best. Everything was free there. If you once you if you live there, you walked onto that street, every single thing was free there. That's awesome. There was rides for the kids, food, like up and down, everything was free. And that's kind of like what was happening here. That's cool. And it was a big celebration that they had every year and it's the summertime, so the kids are all out of school, so it's fun. And it's it's something that they celebrated a lot because, like I said, there wasn't a lot of industry in the town. So they do like celebrating the industries that are still present there. So everyone was kind of celebrating pretty hard. The event involves shutting down one of the main streets. And the presence of most of the town is at this event. So that means that there has to be also a large police presence. At the festival, there was obviously Polish-American food, but there was also carnival food, drinking. So that entails, for obviously the workers of the event and the police officers, a busy night even long after the lights and the rides have shut down. Most of the officers of the town's police force were working those details. 
but by 1140, most of the residents of the town had headed home. They thought things were winding down, but they were very wrong. One of the callers that had called 911 told the dispatcher that they had an emergency. They breathlessly got out the words, Vine Street, Vine Street in Shenandoah. When the dispatcher asked what the problem was, the woman said, you need to come here. You need to send an ambulance. The man on the other end of the phone was trying to find out what was happening, but the caller seemed distracted by something that was actively taking place. Finally, her concentration on whatever she was watching was broken, and she said, he got beat up, real bad. Someone kicked him in the face. And then she began to yell into the phone, you need to send an ambulance now, now, now. It became very clear at the dispatch station that whatever was happening in Shenandoah was very serious because more and more calls were coming in. Another woman stated that she was in her home when she heard very loud screaming. When she looked outside, she had seen someone getting beaten up very badly by a group of people. She could hear each blow and kick that they landed on the man who was laying on the ground. Someone had yelled out to them, and then she heard the sound of their sneakers hitting the pavement. They were running away. But then they came back. She'd run over to the situation, and she said that everything was horrible. After the group ran away again, she said that it was very obvious that he had been kicked in the head. The man was now motionless. Then she told them what the other woman had. They needed to send an ambulance right away. Then another call came into the center, this time a man. He was yelling at them, saying that they may want to send the police down to the baseball field because that was where the kids who beat up that guy had gone. It was chaos for the usually slow-moving, underpopulated town. And the people who witnessed the event on Vine Street that night had no idea that they just witnessed a crime that would forever divide their town. As Luis Ramirez lay on the asphalt of Vine Street Park, the onlookers who had called 911 watched helplessly as he went in and out of consciousness. The bruising and extreme swelling of his body and face had begun, and red frothy foam began to spill from his mouth. Those who were there with him thought that the response to their desperate calls were coming at a snail's pace. And that was why when the first officer arrived, finally got to the scene, all the people kind of like let this man know, like, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for a long time. And the first responding officer wasn't even an officer from Shenandoah. So that's that's really interesting that you have a cop that's responding that's not even from Shannon. Uh, how do you say it again? Shenandoah. Shenandoah. Okay. Um, that's bizarre. And why not an ambulance? Well, right. And that's what they're saying. They're like, we've waited forever for you. You're not even from the town's police force. I mean, a few minutes later, two other officers come that are from Shenandoah. And they are um, Officer Jason Hughes and Lieutenant Bill Moyer. And they're the ones who like show up first, but then they have to leave because another call comes in that they have to like follow through with. But they were kind of shocked that everything was taking a long time. But eventually an ambulance comes. 
Now, when you say eventually, are we talking like a half an hour? Like, what are we talking about? I mean, I, I want to say that everyone was probably really frustrated because they had called multiple times saying that the ambulance was like they needed it urgently. But it definitely was less than half an hour that it took for an ambulance to respond. It always sucks when you have something like this that takes place and the response time is horrible because you're in a small town with a small police force and first responders. But then you would think, is it a thing where it's countywide or, or or like a province-wide where they respond from different areas and that would also make the time longer? So it's like no matter what you do, it's kind of a bad situation. So there might not be a lot working. Now you have to outsource it from somewhere else. Well, I think the outsourcing definitely took place because most of the officers or people on the Shenandoah force were working the street fair. So some of them might have been off of their shift. They were probably working with the skeleton crew at night because so many had to be on or were working overtime. And it's very normal within small towns, um, especially because, you know, not only do you have a county police force, but you have town police force, that if there is such a big issue, like such an urgent issue, officers from other towns will respond if they're close to where it is. Okay. So unbeknownst to them, the people at this scene, the man that had been attacked was named Luis Ramirez. He had been with his girlfriend's sister at the park, and they were on their way home. When the attack on Luis started, she had called her sister, Luis's girlfriend, and the mother of his two children, Crystal. Crystal had arrived at the scene just as the ambulance was arriving minutes after the two other additional police officers had. Crystal had been home when her sister and Lewis's friend had called. You have to get down here. You have to get down here right away. She had been disoriented by their call because she'd been sleeping. She at first had thought they were joking. But when their frantic tones didn't waver, she got dressed quickly and headed down to Vine Street Park. She knew for sure that this was not a joke when she saw Lewis on the ground. Paramedics and police officers were standing around him with flashlights, as the park doesn't have a lot of lighting. He was loaded up and brought to the hospital. She went back to her home so she could get her car and make sure that her kids were taken care of, and then she drove to the hospital. However, the local hospital would not be able to help Lewis. This was bad. His head was misshapen and the swelling was getting worse and worse. He had to be taken in a helicopter to a nearby trauma center. That is crazy. That's extensive traumatic brain injury. I mean, there is one good thing at play here, and it's the fact that multiple people in the neighborhood have spotted the the crime taking place, you know, and and calling up for assistance. Right. It's just, you know... I know that my first instinct would be to investigate it and like try to help that person. But then it's like, do you do that? Because then if you go in, there's a possibility that you'll be just like attacked as well. Exactly. And then you're in the same boat as him. So it's like, what do you do? You know, that's why they called. I mean, a lot of people called the police. And then when I'm going to like kind of go through this scenario and it'll make it a, a little bit more sense. But um, some other people show up at this scene, which kind of almost chases the people who have attacked him away. And that's when the people who were on the phone with 911 in their homes felt safe enough to go out and assist. 
but okay. it is scary. You don't know what these people have. You're watching from afar. Do they have weapons? You know, it's hard. It's a hard call. I'm wondering. I'm wondering already if this is something that might have been planned or that this person has been targeted because what better time than to know that every first responder is going to be at the festival right and then do also do it or in an off area at that point exactly or do it in an end also doing it in an area where there's not a lot of light or yeah. not, you can't be really seen too well right so maybe this could have been planned or just he's just being targeted right. for whatever reason Luis Ramirez came to the United States from Guanajuato, Mexico, in order to have a better life for himself and the family that he wanted to have someday, the family that he eventually did have. He had known people that were also settled in Pennsylvania, and that was why he chose to go there as well. Crystal said that she had fallen in love with Luis because he was kind, funny, and goofy. She found peace in being with him because he was always very calm, and he was a wonderful father. When she met Louis, Crystal had a two-month-old daughter, Angelina. And really, when the two were first introduced, being in a relationship was the furthest thing from her mind because she had an infant to take care of. But on top of all of the great things that Louis was, he decided to step in and help Crystal as much as he could. And since their meeting years prior, the couple had gone on to have two more children, and they were happy. They were happy as a family and in love as a couple. And all of that was being threatened. Crystal sat in the hospital waiting room hoping for good news from the doctors. She was told that Lewis had suffered severe brain and bodily harm. However, the most pressing issue that had to be handled immediately was the swelling of his brain. They needed to perform a decompressive craniotomy, which involved removing a portion of the skull in order to relieve the pressure. The doctor explained the procedure to her and promised her that they were going to do everything in their power to make him better. And I, Crystal at that point, she was worried and scared, but the doctor did assure her like, yes, this, this surgery and, and this can go bad, but this isn't something that isn't performed a lot like sometimes like people will have strokes and it needs to be performed so you can have this procedure done and go on to live a normal life or it may not work in the swelling or traumatic brain injury might have been worse so it really all depends on how his body responds and how bad the damage was yeah that's always really sad when you're dealing with traumatic brain injuries because you truly never know the extent of what could be. Until the person wakes up. Yeah. It's really bad. Yeah. But either way, the doctor did prepare Crystal to know that this was going to be a long road to recovery if he does get out of the surgery successfully. But those feelings of optimism that Crystal had turned to doubt when she was brought into the recovery room. She couldn't believe what she saw. Lewis was hooked up to many machines, and it looked like every part of his head was extremely swollen. As she sat down next to him, the doctor began to tell her what was happening. She was his next of kin, the mother of his children, his fiancée. So she was the one to receive all of the bad news. They told her that at the moment Lewis was on life support, 
and they were waiting for him to wake up to see if there would be um, any signs of brain activity. So they were going to kind of give it some time and see if he woke up. Crystal said that she sat with him and she just tried to talk with him and hold his hand and let him know that she loved him and how much the kids loved him and how much they wanted him home. I couldn't imagine sitting in that hospital room not knowing what the future was going to hold. Yeah, I mean, you have your future husband or husband-to-be laying father there. Father of your father kids. Father of your kids. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the saddest things because your whole entire life is being just like dangled on a string at yeah. this point. Yeah, I mean, that's really difficult for any family that's ever had to endure anything like yeah. this. I mean, think about this. You truly don't know what's going to happen, like I mentioned earlier, but like also the amount of, um, even if he does wake up, the amount of, uh, you know, um, maybe surgeries or uh, rehabilitation, right? all that stuff, that's, that's all going to be money, and, you know, and like, yes, you know, and, and resources that have to be dedicated to him and his family. Right. You know, he might need assistance even at home, whether it be maybe you never know. God forbid you need wheelchair, cane, whatever. You might need so many things down that line. The whole thing is scary. It must have been overwhelming thinking about the future, but also being nervous and wondering if the future is even going to happen. Yeah. And like you said before, the most frustrating thing about brain injuries is that, you know, when you talk to a doctor, you want answers, but... The doctors can't provide any answers when it comes to brain injuries. No, it's almost like a mystery. Right. So the perpetrators of the reported and witnessed fight were not arrested that night. Instead, an exasperated witness told the police that had arrived at the scene, so the two officers that came after the first responding officer, that they had seen the kids that had done this run towards the baseball field. So now I just want to set a physical scene for you. Vine Street Park is located on Vine Street. Um, On Vine Street, there are not any houses where the park is located. So across from the park directly are like independent garage units. But there are houses on the street that run perpendicular to Vine Street. And it's those houses who kind of had a side view of the park that were able to witness the event and call 911. Because the fight didn't necessarily happen at the park. That's where like the altercation had originated. But the fight took place on the street. So that's why they were able to kind of have a better look at it. Now, the park itself is small. It consists of a paved path that lead to two basketball courts. To the right of the courts are four sets of swings and two playground spring animals. But that's it. On the other side of the park is an entrance to the Shenandoah Little League fields, which leads eventually to the two um, schools of the town. There's an elementary school and a high school right next to each other, and that's on the other side of the Little League fields. So when it came to the boys running away, what had happened was one of the people that had called 911, they were chasing the kids down to the field. So they had hung up and then they called again saying, we're still chasing, we're still pursuing the kids. 
So the two officers that were at the scene with Lewis received information from dispatch. We have a civilian chasing the suspects. So that's why the two officers leave the scene with Lewis to go and try and figure out what's going on with this situation. Because you obviously don't want something to escalate again. Right. You have a civilian chasing them. He can wind up in the crossfire now, too. He can get hurt. (laughs) And everyone was kind of like, well, everyone at the scene was confused. A, they thought it took a really long time for police to get there, the ambulance to take Lewis away. Um, They thought the officers from the town were acting strange, moving slowly, not investigating with like intensity so they were very frustrated at the scene and and everyone there was just kind of left with like the question of why like why is this there's something seems wrong here so what's going on and that question was answered quite quickly the following day when the talk around town was that the kids who had beaten that man were the high school varsity football players uh oh. Yes. See, that's uh, that's something that I feel like you get from small towns. Um, sometimes. <laughs> yes. It's like uh, we're looking to protect certain individuals because of what they're a part of. Correct. That's Especially when that's thing. something that the town holds in such high regard. Yeah, that's never a good thing. No. So it is now that I want to bring you back to the beginning of the podcast when I said that Shenandoah used to be the glory of Pennsylvania, but it was a ghost of its former self. And I want to bring you back to that quote that that resident said, you either stay because you don't have the money to leave or you're hanging on to what used to be. And the one thing the people of Shenandoah had clung on to was the show under the Friday night lights high school football. It was sacred, and they were usually good. If you grew up in a town where football was king, you get it. Sports budgets go all to football. The town and the people of the town donate and pour money into the program. And the players? Well, they just seem to get away with murder, don't they? I like, what you, I like how you said that. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I guess it's true to an extent. I mean, you have a town where, let's just say it the way it is. I mean, there's nothing really going on. Um, a lot of people are dealing with really bad situations financially. You you might have crime that might, you know, start to inch its way up because of the poverty, right? Correct. So there's nothing there. So the only thing that people have to look forward to is – the football, football season. So with that being said, that creates those the, it makes those kids actual like gods of the town. Well, it's true because think about it. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a high rate from the high school of kids who are going on to college. So that glory you feel on the high school football field, that might be the only time you feel that way in your whole life. So you hang on to that. And that's what you're told also by your parents and other members of the town. You'll always remember this, you know, and in some ways that may also be some students only opportunity to leave the town and be successful is potentially getting um, scholarships. Yeah, you get noticed, you know. So, yeah, that's really hard when there's no distraction in a town where there's nothing, you know, 
everything seems bleak. <laughs> you know? But it's true. And that's um, this was said by many people in the town. The football players could do what they wanted. They could do what they wanted at school. They could do what they wanted in the town. And they just never seemed to get in trouble. And that just doesn't just go for this class of kids, but the classes before and then later after. That's really bad. Yeah. So according to the talk around town, members of the football team had attended the Polish street fair. They had pre-gamed in the woods before they went, meaning that they had drinking malt liquor and were considerably drunk when they got to the event around 10 p.m., allegedly. From there, they chose to leave to go to the Vine Street Park, where they had their chance encounter with Luis Ramirez. Most of the information that was getting around came from the players that had been there, but then left the group when they headed to the street fair. So there was a bigger, larger group who had all gone to the street fair, but a lot of the kids had to go home because of curfew. So there was a smaller group that then went on to go to Vine Street Park. And it was also alleged that when some of the Shenandoah police officers had heard that the people who had attacked Luis Ramirez had been football players, their comment had been, well, there goes our season. See, because that's all they care about. You have a guy laying on a floor with brain injuries, but that's what we're focused on. Also, uh, I want to mention, and I don't know this to be fact, but I just want to throw it out there because it it does take place around small towns. These police officers actually might have been former players or staff. Oh, they were. Right. So you have former players that lived through their glory days through watching Friday night, you know, Friday night lights here. Okay. And you never know. One of those police officers could be a coach. Oh, John, you don't know how bad it is. Okay. See, so I'm I'm onto something here, right? You're onto something. It seems like, you know, small towns. (laughs) So (laughs) only grew up in one. And that officer, when he made that comment, he was right. There did go their season because just days after two days after Luis Ramirez was uh, brought to the trauma center via helicopter. He had died of his injuries. That's really sad. He was declared brain dead and removed from life support. He was 25 years old. That's horrible. That and is so horrible. essentially a father of three. Yeah. And engaged to be married. Like that guy did not deserve what happened to him. No. It's so sad. Yeah. He's 25 years old. 25. He's got this whole life ahead of him. He's got a fiance, children. Oh, man. Yep. You hate to see that, honestly. You really do. It's very sad. So the reaction to the crime, both before and after the death of Lewis in the hospital, was lackluster. The kids who were identified as being there at the park that night were questioned long after the event took place. And their interviews happened with a lot of time in between each other, which gave the kids time to get their stories straight. And as the kids were called to the station, the town understood that the rumors were true. It was the football players. Derek Donchok, who's 18 years old, was the quarterback going into his senior year. Brandon Pekarski was 16 going into his junior year. Brian Scully and Colin Walsh were also going into their junior year. They were major players on the team. And Luis Ramirez, he was an immigrant from Mexico. 
Over the past decade, the Hispanic population of Shenandoah had doubled, something that some people in the town were not happy about, almost forgetting that their town was formed on the back of immigrants, probably their own ancestors. Isn't that so Isn't, ridiculous, but right? that's the way it always goes. Yeah. It depends what kind of immigrants. Well, to what. them, yeah, yes. to them, yeah. So therein lies the crux of it all. Old Shenandoah versus new. And those who sympathized with the death of a father of three and those who were concerned about the football players. In a town where tensions were already high, the division this case caused threatened to open the town up to the mines below. The first people who were questioned were Crystal Dillman, her sister Roxanne Rector, the girl who had been with Lewis that night, uh, and then Lewis's friend Victor Garcia and his then fiance Ariel. These were people who were close to Lewis and some who were there that night. Crystal stated that she had spent the day with Lewis and their children. Lewis was going to be going out that night while Crystal was home with the kids. He went out with a bunch of his friends and there he had met up with Crystal's sister while out. The two of them were headed back home. Lewis had called Crystal to let her know that they were on their way. And she told the officers questioning her that she didn't know why, but minutes later she decided to call Lewis back. But he didn't pick up the phone. And she thought that was odd because that was something that he always did. But then she went and she put the kids to sleep and she went to bed herself, only to be woken up a short while later by her sister and his friend Victor. Roxanne, now this is Crystal's sister who was with Lewis that day. She said she had been sitting on one of the park swings and Lewis had been sitting on another swing when a group of teenage boys entered the park. They had said something to her along the lines of it being too late for her to be out. And Lewis stood up and said something to them in Spanish. Another boy, later identified as Brian Scully, responded to him by saying, This is Shenandoah. This is America. Go back to Mexico. Lewis responded to the boys, who then retorted back. The situation seemed as if it was escalating to Roxanne. Lewis then took out his cell phone and called someone. She understood that he had been calling his friend Victor Garcia. There were a lot of them and only one of Lewis. Roxanne said that another boy, later identified as Donchok, called Lewis a spick. And then a boy, later identified as Colin Walsh, told Lewis to get the fuck out of here. She said that she was really beginning to get nervous because she was not able to help him either. And she told Lewis that they should leave. And he listened and began to, with Roxanne by his side, slowly walk backwards out of the park towards the street to leave. And this is like in the direction away from the group. When Lewis reached the street, he turned his back to the group and continued to walk away with his future sister-in-law. That was when the boys ran after him and physically attacked him. The fight began across the street from the park at the beginning of Lloyd Street. Lewis tried to fight back against them as well as he could, but there were three of them. They were later identified as Pekarski, Pekarski, Walsh, and Scully. 
At some point in the fight, Pekarski picked Lewis up and threw him down on the ground. Pekarski tried to kick Lewis while he was on the ground, but had fallen over, which allowed Lewis time to get up. At that point, Donchuk had ran over and joined the fight. It was now four against one. Donchuk began punching Lewis in the face over and over again while calling him a fucking spick. From the force of the blows, Lewis fell to the ground. Roxanne was screaming. People were starting to look out their windows. And it's at this point that the 911 calls start coming in. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's crazy. Like, oh, my God. You know, as you're telling me this, it's like I'm like I have my eyes closed and I'm just like having this like picture be put together. And it's just so freaking sad because Lewis de-escalated the situation, which and, and by the way, this man had every right to be angry. <laughs> I mean, for them to come after him like that and say those things like that to him, I think any person would want to flip out and retaliate. Yeah. But he was better than that. He walked away, and it still didn't matter. He de-escalated the situation. They continued to pursue. That is just so wrong in so many ways. I can't even – I don't even want to get into it on the podcast because I think it's just so ridiculous that even 2008, we're still like dealing with something like that. I mean, this is a guy that most likely came from a very poor background maybe or just a bad life or try – or. Maybe not. Maybe just wanted better, you know? And that's right. why he's here, and that's what we're dealing with. So I think that it's just ridiculous, you know? Because I know that if I was in that situation, yeah. I probably would have retaliated and and maybe be conf- uh, confrontational if someone was saying such hateful crap right. to me. At this point, he's just trying to defend himself. Yeah, like I'm I mean, being honest here, guys. If someone was saying those kind of things to me, I'd want to well, retaliate, <laughs> you know? Um, but Of course it's going to provoke you. It's going to provoke a reaction out of you because based on what it sounds like was happening in the town prior to this was that there was this like anti-immigrant sentiment that was happening throughout the town. So I'm sure these are words that he's heard before, but now he's also being physically attacked. So, I mean, even if he does retaliate, it's still one of him against four of them. Not only that, but now the more adult and calm version of me would say, we're also dealing with this because his back's up against the wall because He's 25. He knows that those kids are under it. Some of them might be underage. Yes. So what do you and do? And they're intoxicated. He, right. So there's like a lot of factors here. And I think that he was doing the smart thing by just leaving, you know, because he doesn't want to like get into a physical fight with children, right. literally. Well, there's know? also this like larger message here that is actually a terrifying thing to realize is that sometimes we are truly defenseless in the face of evil. Yeah. Because there's... There's nothing you can no, do. No, there's not, there's not an option to be had here. No. I mean, he really... The only option was to leave, and he did. Yeah, he did. And they attacked... They ran after him. So Sad. now, at this point, Lewis has fallen to the ground because he has been repeatedly punched by Derek Donchok. And he falls to the ground, Roxanne's screaming, people are looking out their windows, 911 calls start pouring in to the Schuylkill County dispatch. And while Lewis is defenseless on the ground, the four boys began to kick, stomp, and punch him. That was when Victor Garcia arrived with his then fiance Ariel. 
And remember, this is who Lewis had called right before the situation was beginning to escalate. Now, Arielle knew the boys from school because she's 17 years old and also goes to the Shenandoah Valley High School. In his interviews, Victor Garcia said that when he got there, he saw all the boys around Lewis and they were kicking him hard in his upper body. When he got out of the car with Ariel, the boys noticed her and got nervous. So they stopped the attack and some began to walk away. Well, all of them except for Derek Donchok, who punched Lewis in the face a few more times. The boys were yelling out to both Lewis and Victor, who had then at that point went to go check on Lewis to see if he was all right. And they were yelling, fucking Mexicans, fuck you, spick. But one boy... Walsh said to Ariel, this isn't racial. I'm sorry, what? So the the kid, Walsh, he said to Ariel as he was leaving, this isn't racial. So like, I think he already is recognizing this is looking like a horrific hate crime and I'm going to try and start backtracking this all. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely 100% a hate crime, bro. I would say. Come on, so, man. Yes. But then Scully turned around and yelled to them, Go home, you Mexican motherfucker. And Victor said that Lewis, who was now on his feet at this point, was provoked by these comments. And when he had finally gotten his balance, and because he must have been so angry, he ran at Scully, who had been the one to have just said that, and the two of them began fighting. Walsh ran back as well and punched Lewis in the face. He punched Lewis in the face with such force that he fell backwards and fell down, as was described, like a ton of bricks. And he slammed the back of his head against the pavement with a sickening sound. At that point, Lewis was motionless on the ground. Then one of the teenagers ran at Lewis and, with as much force as he could muster, kicked him in the side of the head. The kick was so forceful that it made a crack sound and it caused Lewis's head to fly in the other direction. Immediately after the kick, the witnesses said that Lewis began convulsing and making sounds that sounded like snoring. At this point, the boys all ran from the scene, but not before someone yelled out, tell your fucking Mexican friends to get the fuck out of here or you're going to be laying next to him. And that was when some of the onlookers ran after the boys, one of them being Eddie Ney, who was still on the phone with 911 saying the boys are running down um, and I'm following them. So this is a very unique situation because we know, like we we have already ID'd the people responsible. We know who they are. Yeah, this isn't a whodunit. Right, it's not a who you, yeah, whodunit. So we we know that people have witnessed this happen. There's there's testimony, like there's at least five or six people here that have seen what's going on. Yes. And we have somebody literally chasing them and the police have so far have done nothing. Not yet. It gets worse. Oh, man. And that story, the story that was told by Roxanne and Victor and Ariel, that was not the story that the football players were telling. Well, of course not. 
Brian Scully, who was not interviewed until days after the incident, said that Lewis and one of his friends, who had also been on the swing, had gotten into a verbal altercation, but that no racial slurs were said. He said that Lewis was irate and out of control, that he had been the one to attack them, and they were just trying to defend themselves. And the story of the other boys had been the same, the exact same. No drinking, no racial slurs. It had been a one-on-one fight, and there was certainly no kick. Of course not. I mean, that is the most ridiculous thing ever. Obviously, nobody, a 25-year-old, isn't just going to just get irate and go ballistic over nothing and then start picking a fight with them. Right. Something had to have happened to start this, if that even was the case. It's not just going to happen. Right. Well, this seemed to be the story, though, that the police were leaning towards. Wait, so they were believing the kids' stories? Yes. Oh, my God. Despite the fact that Victor Garcia, Ariel, Roxanne Rector, and the people who witnessed the fight from their homes, the unbiased witnesses, said that they saw the attack and they saw the final kick. A final kick that was described as a soccer kick or a punt kick. It had been violent. Yeah, you know, even if, okay, I'm just trying to put things into perspective for myself here, though. But even if he uh, Lewis did start this, there's no excuse for the amount of violence that uh, that precedes that. Even if he was to like push somebody or say something messed up to to one of them, it doesn't matter. To beat this guy senseless on the ground and kick his head repeatedly, yeah, that doesn't. There's no justification for that. It doesn't even matter. So, like, it, their story, they should all have their parents there, and they should all be being, some of them being tried as adults right now for the death of this poor man. Well, what made things really complicated was, so, like, the night of, they were able to get the story of Brandon Pekarski, but then not until hours later, and in some cases days later, did police talk to the other boys. So they were all able to have the same exact story. So because the stories were varying from the witnesses, because that's just the way it works with eyewitness accounts, they said, well, how come the boys' stories are all the same, but their stories vary slightly? I don't know, because you waited like three weeks to get them, and they all made sure that their stories were the same? Right. <laughs> but that's just like what they were <laughs> no, saying. No, I know, but that is insane to think, oh, that that's their reasoning. Like, okay, really? Yeah. They had time to prepare. They're being coached by maybe their parents, the police, whoever. They all have the same story because they're it's they're intentionally doing that. Correct. You know, how do you <laughs> bring these cases forward that anger me and make me sad? I know this is <laughs> like it's oh. either I'm super sad or just infuriated. And in this case, you're a bit of both. I am. Well, I am. I am a little bit of both. And I have to tell you that I have been in a situation where I phys- I have physically been somewhere and seen, like, the favoritism. Right. You know, like, I, like it's not like, oh, I'm reading about this for the first time. Like, I've been a part of that kind of situation where we were somewhere where we probably shouldn't have been. Cops were called. Cops came. Everybody was getting, like, uh, I guess for lack of, I guess they were getting arrested because they brought in a van to 
take everybody out. The paddy wagon. We were partying in a, in a house that we should not have been in. Um, anyway, long. it's a long story. This is bad. You're incriminating yeah, yourself. I know. I am. But <laughs> uh, I'll make a long story short. That was happening. We were partying. Things got broken in the home. Cops were called. And everybody got locked up in the paddy van there, paddy wagon, except guess who? The football players. The football players who I was a part of and we got out of it because the responding officer was a coach. Yeah. So See, it, it, does it, happen. it is real. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. Not proud of it. But that is totally real. Well, that actually happened around here as well. There is a town that we live close by. We've actually covered a case from there once. Um, uh Wayne, New Jersey, where there's two high schools, their rival like football, there's a big football rivalry between the two of them. But Wayne Hills High School versus Wayne Valley High School, there's always this big rivalry and the football players from Wayne Hills, which is was always kind of known for the better team, surrounded two players of Wayne Valley and they beat them until they had to go to the hospital. It's crazy. Because of a fight had at a Halloween party or something. But at the time, the coach of Wayne Hills was Greg Olson's father that played on the Carolina Panthers. What was his name? Greg, Greg Olson. No, but his father. Oh, his I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Well, Greg Olson, the football player, his father coached at Wayne Hills. And he had those, even though those boys were like facing really serious charges, they had them play. Yeah, sometimes it's just and the I way it goes. And I remember it was such a big deal. I don't, I don't know why, but... And everyone was being interviewed, and they're like, yeah, let the kids play guilty and uh, innocent until proven guilty. And it's like, boys are sitting in the hospital right now, and it's like similar. Like, the town gets like caught up in this, like, no, those that they wouldn't do that. Well, I, they did. I, yeah. I, I think that what it should be, okay, is if a player... From anything, football, whatever sport, if a player is doing something that is against the code of conduct, where it's detrimental to team, if you, if a player is doing something that's going to put their team and their school and their family in in a bad negative light, and the they don't play. Of that. They don't play. That's it. Right. Period. Like simple. Well, as I said before, this all greatly divided the town of Shenandoah. Those who supported the young men that had beaten a man to death were referred to as our boys. Our boys would never do that. Our boys are good boys. And these teenagers were certainly the boys of the town. Some of them were fourth generation that had lived in Shenandoah. Wow. So we're talking deep roots. And they knew everyone in the town, including those who were in positions of power. Brandon Pekarski's mother was friends with many officers on the police force. And she was very good friends with the chief of police himself. But she was dating Officer Jason Hayes, one of the first officers at the scene. Oh, my. See, so that's conflict of interest right there. Yep. No one, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure no one's going to bring that up. He should take himself completely out of this case completely. Well, it takes weeks, but he does. Well, well, He's sh- forced to by the DA. See, it takes the DA to do it. Oh wait, this. Oh just, man, you just so this is up, so this buddy. is actually insane. Yeah. It go, this goes pretty deep. Oh okay. yes, all right. And the Donchocks were very successful members of the town, pillars of the community. They owned businesses. They were very like one of the high-ranking t- families of the town, if you want to say that. Okay, you know. So the conversation was that the boys would never do that, and if. 
Luis Ramirez would have never come to America. Well, he wouldn't be dead, would he? What? Yep. Is that what someone said on record? Yes. And aiding in this vile narrative was the fact that the incident was being reported as a fight gone bad. And it was noted quite blaringly in all publications of this that Luis Ramirez was an undocumented immigrant. As if that made him deserving of death. It's horrific. That is insane that that's something that has been publicized or, or, you know, like put out there for everybody to read. Are you kidding me? Fight gone bad. That's a hate crime. Yes. It's wow, assault, brother. That's assault, brother. Um, seriously, though, that that is insane that this town is collectively trying to cover up with these to minimize kids. This. To, to minimize a, a, essentially a murder. So saying your life is not worth what our boy's life is worth. Your your life is not worth our football season. All right. I, I You know what? I'm going to let you continue. Okay. I'm just going to let you continue. So... I know what you're all thinking. How could this go down this way? If the accounts from the teenagers don't match up with the unbiased accounts of third-party witnesses. But that was the direction the case seemed to be headed in. That is until the report from the medical examiner came in. The report confirmed that the kick to the head had taken place and also confirmed that the cause of death the traumatic brain injury was the combination was the fact that um, Lewis's fall to the pavement. Remember he hit the back of his head very hard when he was punched by Walsh and fell to the ground. And that paired with the kick to the head led to the extreme swelling of the brain, which later caused his death 48 hours after his arrival at the trauma center. Yep. So they are, the police are essentially, and I don't want to say the, I don't want to lump the whole town in together. And I don't want to lump the whole police force in together because that's unfair to do. Um, Not everyone in the town thought this and not everyone in the police force agreed with what was happening. That's fair. So I just want to make that like statement. You're right. I take back what I said, but. Uh, But, you know, you do have a selected few of higher standings within the community that are making these decisions and making this happen, though. Right. For sure. I mean, these are prominent members of the community. They're the pillars, and they're obviously trying to cover this up. And making bad choices. Right. Yeah. So um, the what had been accepted, the narrative that had been accepted was there was no kick to the head. Well, now the one thing that was working against the people that were trying to cover this up was the fact that the medical examiner's report said there had been a kick to the head. I mean, because you got to think about the force that is involved. Right. I mean, this poor man had his whole head, you know, uh, mangled by most likely a couple of kicks probably to the head. Yes, because he had been stomped on. Multiple times, yeah. So now the town and the police force may be protecting the attackers. But the district attorney's office had no association with or stake in who won the Colonial Skokel Blue Conference that fall. So they wanted to press charges. In their eyes, the kick, while he was on the ground, showed malice. The kick was murder. But now they had to figure out which one of the teenagers had kicked Luis Ramirez and which one of them to charge 
with aggravated assault and which one to charge with murder. And in that simple question lay the problem. The DA may want to charge one of the kids, but they needed to do some investigative work. So they needed all the files from the Shenandoah Police Department. But the whole investigative process and record keeping didn't seem like it was high on the priority list of the two officers who were assigned this case. There was no urgency in any of the officers to question any eyewitnesses. The district attorney's office had to do that. And another thing that was not done was the area of the park had not been canvassed. Yes, many people had called 911 and given statements, but there might have been people who watched the fight and the events that had preceded it, but never called 911. That information was never attempted to be obtained. Another thing that the DA's office had been able to find out through their questioning of people in the town and around the area was the fact that when the teenagers had arrived at the street fair, they had been asked to leave shortly after because when they arrived, they seemed to be intoxicated and the kids had all gotten into a verbal fight with another party goer, um, a fight to the point where Brandon Pekarski had to be physically restrained. So they were asked to leave. Okay. So they were looking for a fight that night. Yeah. Is what it seems. And what was making all of this all the more messy was not just the fact that Officer Hayes was practically Brandon Pekarski's stepfather, but that Officer Moyer, the other man to first arrive at the scene, had known all of the suspects for years because his son played football with them. There's many conflict of interests here. Oh, yeah. For sure. Because the officers first at the scene had been so close with all of those teenagers, they didn't follow up on any of the proper protocols. And when they had finally been caught, they were all brought not to the police station, but Derek Donchok's house. For what purpose? So that night when they were all like rounded up, oh. they didn't bring him to the police station. They brought him to Donchok's house. Probably to get their story straight. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, my God. The police God. brought them there. It wasn't like, oh, they just gathered. I mean, one. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that most likely the reason for that was so they got their story straight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> oh, man. So when the district attorney's office learned about all of these breaks in procedure, they were shocked. Then they learned something else even worse. The day after the beating had taken place, there was a meeting held at Brandon Pekarski's house with all of the teens, their parents, and Officer Hayes. <laughs> okay. And not to mention, because Brandon Pekarski's mother was friends with the chief of police, they were also receiving information from the chief of police, Matthew Nestor. So, like, they were obviously, so it's the day after, right? So they know Lewis is in critical condition. So the chief of police says, like, this is looking like he's going to die, whatever. So now they're like, hey, we got to get our story straight because it's, he's going to die. And this is going to come out later that this is, like, a horrific thing, that some of the boys were joking about getting Lupe tattooed on them because he was Mexican. What? It doesn't even make sense, and it's just horrifically offensive, and it showed how much they cared that this man was going to oh, die. Oh, they didn't care at all. It was, they cared zero for what they did. 
And 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 you know what? Like the DA said, there is absolutely malice intent here. Right. And they're they're remorse. They're not even remorseful. They have malice intent. They weren't trying to pick a fight with somebody that night. Yes. And Lewis was unfortunately a. Um, he was there. There. Right. Wrong place. Wrong time. No matter what he said or did, he was going to be attacked that night. Yeah. So this meeting at Pekarsky's house had been held before most of the boys had been interviewed. And it was where they were with the assistance of a law enforcement officer. That's where they were able to formulate the story that they would later give to police and the one that the police accepted because they were the ones who made it up. But like I said before, the teenagers were interviewed hours apart from each other and in some cases an entire day apart from each other so if any of them slipped up they were able to talk to each other to say okay in the next interview corroborate what i said so it doesn't seem like i messed up wow yeah they were protecting one another as the district attorney learned this information they grew more and more concerned about the integrity of the police force the police force that was supposed to be aiding them because the Shenandoah Police Department did not press charges, which they could have, the district attorney decided that they were going to take over the investigation, especially because there was just a conflict of interest with the relationships that existed between the police officers and the perpetrators. So they requested all of the police files so they could move forward the way they wanted to. And this is on July 21st. But the police force was not as accommodating as they should have been. Officer Moyer and Hayes did not turn over all of their reports and finals to the district attorney until three weeks later. And this is only after the district attorney himself had to write formal letters to the chief of police requesting the files. See, that's something that I think is a little bit uh, of a rarity when you have a breakdown in chain of command and the way things are supposed to be run. Yeah. When If you're the DA, you are expecting those police officers to keep law and order, you know, at that level. Whatever they come up with is then passed to the DA. Right. Your case so, is reliant yeah. on their investigation. Uh, right. So when you have a breakdown like that. It's hard to seek uh, any kind of justice when you when you have things working against you. Right. It's intense. I, I'm sure the DA could still go around it and take care of business, but it doesn't help when you have this taking place as well. Right. Well, he's not wanting to aggravate them because he's going to need them eventually. Yeah. So when the district attorney's office finally received the files, they were shocked at the findings. In one of the reports, it stated that one of the witnesses said that the one to have kicked Luis Ramirez in the head had been Brian Scully. But luckily, the district attorney's investigators had the pulse of the town down at this point, and they had learned through interviews with locals and witnesses that it had not been Scully. What they said in the police report was that Ariel had been the one to say that Brian Scully gave the kick, but Ariel was very adamant with the district attorneys that she didn't say anybody. Like, she didn't name the person. So they kind of falsified um, documents. documents. Is that why it took three weeks? Interesting. And the rumors going around town were that the police and the connected families were trying to protect their own. And Brian Scully and his family were just not a part of that. He was going to be the scapegoat. 
but the witnesses at the scene said that they had seen Brandon Pekarski be the one to have dealt the final blow. It's interesting how... They're turning yeah. on, on the weakest link. Yep. The family that's not connected. Well, they someone has to be the fall guy here. And it's gonna. It's looking like they're trying to make it be Brian Scully. But I do have to add that I, in my opinion, if I'm the DA, I'm not looking for just the person who kicked this guy, kicked this poor man in the head. Well, that's the only person they can charge with murder. I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm. If I'm the DA, I'm going after everyone. Well, that's what they're trying to. I do. will get everyone. <laughs> Because that is what needs to happen here to set the example of what is set accepted and what is not. That, th- that these hate crimes will not take place. Because it's ridiculous. Yeah. On August 5th, the district attorney's office called Brian Scully for an official interview. Their plan was to go at him as if he had been the one to do it in hopes that he would realize that his friends were trying to turn him in and they could get him to come clean. Once present with his guardian, they told him it was over. They knew it was him and they were going to charge him with murder and that it was right here on the police report that all of his friends had told on him. But they said, we know that there might be another side to the story. So if you come clean, we could help you. But you have to help yourself because everyone's turning against you. And Scully was very anxious in this interview, and he kept saying that if I told you, you won't believe me. If I told you, you won't believe me. And he keeps kind of repeating himself here. And that interview goes on for a few hours. Now, not wanting to scare him or press him, the district attorney lets Scully go. And just hours after the interview, Brian Scully's lawyer contacted the district attorney to let him know that his client wanted to come in for another interview and come clean. The following day, Brian Scully went into the office and confirmed everything that had been told by Roxanne Rector, Victor Garcia, and Ariel. All of it. All of the racial slurs, the violence, the group attack, and the final kick. The kick that had been dealt by Brandon Pekarski. After the interview with Scully, the DA reached out to the other boys to ask them to come in for interviews. The only one who came in besides Scully was Colin Walsh, who also confirmed all that was said by the witnesses and Scully, because I think he was leaning towards working on a plea deal because he knew kind of the jig was up once Brian Scully fall, fell. Now, really quickly, I don't want to do, do too much sidetracking, but was Scully the one that at that night said no uh there what this is this is not racial no that was walsh okay i'm sorry i just yeah. want to i want to make sure gully was the one who said the thing that angered lewis enough to go back at him okay all right so nobody is in this case you always like to think like okay who was who knew that it was wrong and it's almost like none of them did now no. they're just trying to protect themselves right it's damage control right. at its finest i mean that's taking place here right Despite the fact that Colin Walsh was admitting his role in what happened on the night of July 12th, the district attorney's office was still going to prosecute. Brandon Pekarski, Derek Donchalk, Colin Walsh, they were charged with murder. However, a judge later ruled that the prosecution could only proceed with third-degree murder and ethnic intimidation in the case of both Pekarski and Walsh. Donchalk faced charges of ethnic intimidation and aggravated assault. Colin Walsh agreed to a plea deal because he didn't want to face trial. He also agreed to testify against Pekarski and Donchalk for a reduction in sentencing. 
In total, Colin Walsh was sentenced to four and a half years of jail time. In the trial, where many witnesses testified, as did Walsh and Scully, they, the witnesses recounted everything that happened that night. And the account that I read for you earlier in the podcast, that comes from the transcripts of this case, uh, this trial. And during the trial, Pekarsky and Donchok were heavily criticized for joking and goofing around with each other. Unbelievable. Now, despite the testimony, the 911 calls being played, the fact that these two were acting the way they were, Pekarsky and Donchok were acquitted of third-degree murder charges, not guilty. They were, however, convicted of misdemeanor assaults. And in 2009, they were sentenced to 23 months each. So what you're telling me is nobody really got much for what took place here, is what I'm getting. Well, it's not over yet. Okay. By this time, the trial had received national attention. And to say that the public was outraged was an understatement. The trial was reported as a gross miscarriage of justice. But the people of Shenandoah, some of them, because again, we don't want to lump everyone into this, but some of the people of Shenandoah thought the trial was a victory for the hometown heroes. And when the verdict had been read, the cheering and celebrating was disgusting. Crystal said later in an interview, it was like Lewis's life just didn't matter. After the verdict, there were many protests. The protests mentioned other racially motivated crimes, one in Patchogue, New York, which is in Long Island, where a group of men had taken on what they called a sport of beating Hispanic men when they saw them at night. And in the process of participating in this sport, an Ecuadorian man was beaten to death. And in Arizona, there was a fatal home invasion where a father and his nine-year-old daughter were murdered. These three crimes were being lumped together and labeled as hate crimes in the wake of what the Southern Poverty Law Center called a time of strong anti-immigrant sentiment. And this is at the time of the economic downturn, you know, the, the financial crisis of 2008. And we always see a correlation, and we talked about this in the Liesl Ullman case. Whenever you see an economic downturn, you see an extreme rise in the level of hate groups. And that's what was happening here. There was that ridiculous, well, all of the immigrants are taking people's jobs away, that ridiculous thought process that was taking place. Now, the public outrage could not be ignored, and the district attorney's office agreed. They had felt as if their attempts to get justice had been thwarted by local law enforcement. All of this prompted the district attorney to contact the Department of Justice, who quickly stepped in to take a look at the case, and their delve into the case prompted another call to the FBI. Now, this was not 100% new to the Department of Justice or the FBI. In fact, they had already been following the case at the earlier insistence of the district attorney of Schuylkill County about what had been happening in Shenandoah. But their thought process was, and this is what they told the district attorney, because the district attorney was like, I need to get some backup here because this is like really messed up. And the FBI had told him, let's see how this case goes. If it doesn't go well, then we will step in. Okay. And it didn't go well. So now they were stepping in. 
The FBI investigation that followed started off with a look into the death of Luis Ramirez. And in reviewing the files, it expanded to the issue of police corruption. So now it was not just Pekarsky and Donchuk being investigated, but also officers Moyer and Hayes. So let's look at the investigation separately, and I'll tell you the new information learned through the FBI investigations and what they had against the teenagers was basically the same thing that they always had, the witness testimony that was corroborated um, by the boys' friends, the other kids who had been there um, that also participated, and the unbiased bystanders. But what they learned in addition to all of that like what happened that night was the past behavior of the teenagers, because if they're trying to establish that this was a hate crime, it needs to be established. Witnesses stated that members of the group made regular derogatory comments about Hispanic or Latino individuals and that they frequently voiced their displeasure with the presence of such individuals in Shenandoah. Both Walsh and Donchok were quoted as saying that they should get them out of here because it's not good for the town. A classmate said that they believed that many people in their high school felt this way, but that Derek Donchok was very vocal about his feelings. He often wore a shirt to school that said Border Patrol, and he would drive through town in his pickup truck, blasting the song, The White Man Marches On which, if you don't know, is a white supremacist anthem that glorifies the use of violence against minorities. He would also put on this song at parties. I mean, because that sounds so friggin' racist. It's not even funny. There's a, there's a strong history of him basically showing to others that he does have racist sentiment and tendencies. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this might be the first time that he's been physically violent, but I mean, those are tendencies that escalate to that anyway. Right. That behavior isn't good. No. And I, and I see where they're going with this. And I, and I, and I like the direction that maybe the FBI and the DR are taking on this because they're trying to prove that this is something that's been going on for a really long time Correct. with this person. So, Hopefully it turns out to be something good that comes of this. Yeah, I agree. And it's very incriminating and it solidified the actions that night as a hate crime. And now the officers were finally going to be investigated for misconduct. So this is going to be like a little kind of like confusing and all over the place. So just trust the end process. The police officers that were being investigated were officers Jason Hayes and William Moyer. However, as the investigation went on, one more name would be added to the list. Police Chief Matthew Nestor. According to police records of that night, the officers wrote that they didn't know where the suspects were, but that they had been named by Ariel, who had been classmates of theirs. But the FBI found one man to discount it all, Francis Edward Ney. And this is the man that had been on the phone with 911 as he was chasing them. Ney had been driving with a male passenger referred to in official documents as Jesse. They saw the commotion and four younger individuals run in front of their car. They heard a female shouting and saw a man laying on the street. He called 911 and reported seeing teenagers in the park that had gotten into a fight. He first tried to revive Lewis, but it was clear that he could not help him. So instead, he ran into the park to chase after the boys with Jesse. Eventually, they confronted the teenagers. 
According to some of the teenagers, Jesse had a gun on him. At the scene with Lewis was Officer Sanap from West Mahoney Police Department. That was the first man who responded. Remember, it wasn't from Shenandoah. Right. And then Moyer and Hayes showed up shortly thereafter. However, Moyer and Hayes left the scene minutes after because a call came over dispatch that a citizen was chasing the suspects. So the two officers responded. Moments later, Ney again called 911 to report that the teenagers who had beaten Ramirez were near the baseball field and urged dispatch to send police to the area. Ney was speaking with dispatch when Moyer and Officer Hayes arrived. While still on the phone with 911, Ney told one of the officers um, that where the teenagers were and that someone was right there. Then one of the officers responded, and it was later identified to be Moyer. And this was all captured on the 911 call. So this is a really big deal. Because Ney told the police that Don Chalk had remained in the park and the others ran away. And then they were able to catch them at like a laundromat. So in the official police report, it said, we don't know who did it that night. But that's not true because officers Hayes and Moyer took Ney and Donchuk into their police cruiser. Okay. So like they were lying. And it was also on the 911 call because as Ney's telling the police, those boys are over there. Somebody's right here, which was Donchuk. And Moyer goes, okay, we got them. So then why in your police report does it say you didn't know who they right. were? Right, it doesn't match. Right. And then there's obvious reasons for that, that they, they forged mm-hmm. these documents of what happened that night. Correct. But it gets worse because once Ney and Donchok were placed in the police cruiser, Officer Moyer and Hayes drove to Donchok's house where all the teenagers were gathered and they released Ney from there. After speaking with them, the officers looked shocked and confused. Um, once the two were released, Ney just kept walking down the street to go back to like where he lived. And while Officer Hayes and Moyer were driving back to the scene, like where Lewis was, they arrested Edward Ney because Pekarski said he had a gun on him. But it was his friend Jesse that had the gun on him, but he never drew it at the boys. So they wait. They, so they arrest. They Ned. arrested the guy that was running after them. Correct. Yes. <laughs> and another officer um, witnessed Moyer handcuffing Nay, who kept saying, "It wasn't me. It wasn't me." And Moyer told Nay to shut up and placed him in the rear seat of the police car, because this is the guy who could say what really happened. So they arrested him. Right. To scare him. Yes. And Nay is someone, Nay is not like, he may have turned his life around since, but like from what I can get a picture of, because there were some other articles about him, but he wasn't necessarily what I would call an upstanding citizen. Okay. So he might have been arrested and now he's like scared to talk because. Right. Because he doesn't want anything to happen to him. And they they probably were were banking on that. The one person that ran after and tried to do something might not have the best rap sheet or record in the from the past. Correct. Yeah. 
So then phone records were found and witnesses testified to the fact that Officer Moyer called the chief of police, Matthew Nestor, who was off duty at a bar when this incident took place, and he briefed him on what had happened. Then Nestor called Pekarski's mother. So the chief of police calls the mother <laughs> of the perpetrator, yeah. of the murderer. Meanwhile, at Donchok's house, where they were all gathered except for Pekarski, the teenagers spoke with Brandon Pekarski on the phone and were told that Pekarski had given a statement to police and the other teenagers needed to match their stories to Pekarski's. Pekarski and his mother came to Donchok's home later that evening. Based on the information Tammy Pekarski received from Chief Nestor, which she relayed to the teenagers, Everyone knew the situation was serious and they would get in trouble if they didn't get it together and leave things out of their story. This is this is so insane. I mean, this is grossly inappropriate for them to be coaching them to say certain things to get their story straight. Right. This is so negligent. It's it's disgusting. Yes. Oh. And the teenagers decided to base their stories on Pekarski's statement to police. The fight was one-on-one. -on -one. It didn't involve drinking, kicking, or racial language. Now, Luis Ramirez died on July 14th, and by July 21st, the district attorney realized that he had to take over the case because of police misconduct and Officer Hayes' romantic relationship with one of the suspect's mothers. So it was on July 21st that the Shenandoah Police Department lost control of the case. Now, remember earlier when I said they were trying to pin it on Brian Scully? Well, it was found by the FBI that on the night of the 21st, uh, Officer Moyer went to the Scully household. He parked down the street and told Scully's stepfather that he could not risk being seen. He then said numerous witnesses claimed Scully kicked Ramirez, and he urged them to do the right thing and get Scully to confess. So you wait. So you're telling me they he went to his house and pretty much said, "Listen, you need to take the fall for this, yep. so all those other kids will be, be able to get away with it." Yep. Oh my god! No, even worse, though, told it to his father, so the father believed my son did this. Make him confess. Right. Throughout this time, Officer Hayes was meeting with the teenage suspects and their parents, all the while holding off on giving files to the district attorney. In the end, the three men were charged with two counts of conspiring to falsify documents with the intent to obstruct an investigation of a matter within the jurisdiction of the Agency of the United States. Moyer was also charged with two counts of obstruction of justice and making false statements. Now, Brandon Pekarski and Derek Donchok could have been tried at the same time in federal court with officers Moyer, Hayes, and Chief Nestor. However, that was not how the federal prosecutors wanted to do things. They didn't want what happened to Lewis to get lost in the nuances of the misconduct trial, so they handled them separately. The trial of Derek Donchok and Brandon Pekarski began on October 4, 2010. They were not being charged with homicide or assault. Rather, the fact that they had violated the civil rights of Lewis Ramirez by committing a hate crime. This was why the FBI had to dive deep into the history of the two, because they had to prove that the crime was racially motivated. They presented the song, the classmates testifying about their feelings towards 
the Hispanic and Latino population of Shenandoah and happened before when they were kicked out of the street fair um, and the fact that they were looking to hurt someone that night. Uh, then they went through the whole what happened, like the witnesses explained what happened again. And in the end, both Don Chalk and Pekarsky were found guilty and were both sentenced to nine years in federal prison for civil rights violations. All right. I mean, that's a little bit better, but, I, you know, I think that there's a lot there's a lot here. And I think that we didn't even fully unpack the severity of everything that has gone on here. I don't know if you agree with me. So I'll say something and then you could say your piece because you're the you're the um, you always say the right stuff and you always correct me Ugh, if I'm wrong. I'll try. Um, but hear me out. I believe that kids do, are not born being racist. Right. There are outside you know there's outside you know um sources and things that happen with inside your home that maybe adds to what's going on correct and i believe that not only should they stand trial now and take what they deserve but on top of that i think that there is some accountability because i think accountability is the key thing here right so the accountability should go past the people responsible in this case the kids but also maybe a little bit of accountability to the parents here. Right. And what I'm getting at is you killed a 25-year-old man who is uh, was going, going to be a husband and a father to three children. And now that mother has to be a single mother and provide for those three kids. Right. So what I think would be beneficial moving forward in, in these cases of, of crazy misconduct is... And the, violence. And violence. And that the That the police department should be paying reparations to that family that lost their husband and father. Oh, like for the misconduct. Correct. Yeah. For the, what happened there of like with the paperwork and everything that they did to cover it up. Yeah. And I believe that every kid's family that the kids that were involved should also pay reparations to the family of this father that got killed. Because those kids lost a father, a parent. And now have to grow up without one. And right. now, what kind of life will those kids have with a, you know, a single mother that might be struggling to pay for future things that those and children that need? that also breeds like, resentment and anger yeah. and frustration. So I think that that is what should happen. Everyone involved should be paying for this family to have a normal and av- uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, an above average life. I, I see what you're saying. That I think if there were repercussions that existed like that... A family might think twice about repeating maybe some racist sentiments at the dinner table. Yeah, because Is that I, what you're saying. Yeah, like, I, I don't look. Could that not be true? Could could maybe the family have those things not happen at home? And there's other outside factors that maybe led to this person feeling this way. Maybe. Maybe you yeah, can because, say that. And and that is true. It's like every case has to be thought of individually because just because necessarily they might have thought this way or he was acting the way he was, that doesn't necessarily mean that those sentiments are something that are felt by the family. And that's fair. But here here's the last thing I'm going to say about this. That would be very complicated to start. 100%. But I am throwing it out there because it's it, it's it's a conversational starter. But, but here, I agree. But this you're is, angry. Yes. This is so messed I, I, up. And I'm angry too here. But this is the last thing I'm going to say. If we have a child and that kid is under the age of 18 
and he's in our car under our umbrella policy, under our insurance, and he goes out there and hit, he or she goes out there and hits somebody and injures them. And now, where if if they hurt somebody, obviously our insurance is getting sued, and anything that doesn't um, cover that is now on us to pay. Correct. We are responsible for a child under the age of 18, right. and we would have to pay for any kind of damage or any kind of injury that ha- has been suffered based uh, you know, based on what our kid ha- did. So I think the same thing should apply. If you got a kid that's under the age of 18 living under our roof and they go out and do something, the parents should have to pay for that Okay. when it's a- as severe as this. You're I think, really fired up. Today. Yeah, I, I am. I think that people will disagree with me, and that's okay. Um, I think that this is the hill I'll choose to die on because of the severity of this case. And no, I think it is that very sad. There needs to be some sort of justice beyond just somebody getting locked up when you remove a family a, a family member that is supporting children. Because now those children are now at a disadvantage, and that's not fair. Yeah. Where this I happens think, to. I think in this case, and I'm sure there are other cases where that's also the proper example, and I agree with you, but it would just, the whole breakdown of it all and how it would be applied in the court of law and throughout time over how long, like, that would make things really complicated. So that would make hard, make it hard to, like, put into action. But I yeah. understand the sentiment behind it because this is not fair that lives have been ruined. But you could say that in all cases of murder because it's not a difference between um, this being someone who's about to be a father of three kids or someone losing their child. Do you see what I'm saying? So, like, you can't put a value on a life like that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say, like, I'm not trying to put a value on life, but it, it, it's something that's different. Well, people are going to start asking for reparations for every murder victim. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how you go about that, and I never have the answer for that. You're just mad, that. and you just want them to face consequences. Yeah, like there needs to be something a little bit more. Right. I feel like. I get it. I get what you're saying. I just but I, really I, I at feel the end of the people, day, you know? the end of the day, you're never – no amount of money – or time spent behind bars is going to bring back the father of those children or the husband of Crystal. No. And I would just like to sad. yeah, I would just like to see some of these victims families, you know, try to get some sort of normalcy and I think that even though it doesn't bring that person back, it might just alleviate some of the stress. Stress and some of the issues that you're faced with when you're dealing with this. No, that's true. So in January of 2011, the trial about the police misconduct began. They were found guilty as well. Nestor was sentenced to 13 months in prison, followed by one year of supervised release. Nestor was also ordered to pay $100 in special assessment and perform 50 hours of community service. Moyer was sentenced to three months in prison, followed by one year supervised release, and he also had to pay $100 in special assessment and perform 20 hours of community service. Officer Hayes, however, was acquitted of all counts. Hmm. Okay. But in the end, now, all men are out. They've all served their time. It's 2023. They are living their lives, getting married, and enjoying their own families. And that's true. Like, um, Brandon Bukarski is engaged and is getting married very soon, actually, I believe. Um, 
But the same cannot be said for Luis Ramirez and those that love him. His three children will never get to share in holidays or weddings with their father. And Crystal Dillman will not go on to grow old with the man she loved. Very sad. And this is exactly why I said what I said. It's like they get to enjoy that. Now, what if that was ripped from them now? Because now they're adults. They could understand more than what before. What that means. What that means. Right. Right. So. Luis Ramirez was chasing down the American dream. Just as hard as the population of Shenandoah once had, had been, and still is. And that should not have cost him his life. I agree. That's just, it's such a sad case because you just feel so terrible for him. But I do think that here the system won a little bit. And I, and I appreciate the work of that district attorney who stepped in and was like, there's something wrong going on here. I'm going to take over. And they also contacted the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation because I think although there are going to be police officers that do the wrong thing and people that do the wrong thing, we can have faith that there are um, members of our justice system that put on that white hat. Oh, yeah, for sure. And made sure that the calls that needed to be made were, were done. Right. So, and, and did the ask the hard questions, did the work on the ground that unfortunately the um, those officers did not do in this case. Yeah. But it's so sad that this happened and that you know, like like you said, like that family is forever changed and then you see everyone else move on with their lives. It's it that's very sad and yeah, hard. And hard. And I understand what you mean, like how come you get to forget but we have to live it? Yeah. I, I and I I do feel that like sometimes, you know, people don't have the that kind of advocacy to like ask for the, you know, to like make things right, you know? Right. But, I mean, at least the DA and those other um, governing bodies did, did what the they right needed thing. to do. Yeah. yeah. So, before we go, we want to say thank you to our new members of Patreon. And if you're looking for extra episodes of A True Crime Couple, you can join us at patreon.com slash couple, where you will get two bonus episodes a month. So, we just want to say a big thank you to Rebecca Miles, Chantrell Royster, Stacy Jesse, Allison Jenkins, Ariana Rivera, Rosa Harrington, Rachel, Donna, Alex Blum, Melissa, Susan Road, Alla Doherty, Gail, Riley McMullen, Tracy Conrad, Jessica Reed, Rose Rhodes, Colleen Berry, Sam M, Tristan Ryan, Michaela Gardner, Katie Lawless, Pamela Coburn, Michelle Knights, Tamika Porter, Monica Anid, Grace Moyer, Susan Brolette, Just a Torso, that's a good name, <laughs> uh, Lauren Pfeiffer, Natalie Culp, and Abigail Webster. Thanks so much for joining, and we hope you're enjoying all of the amazing perks that come with being a Patreon member. And... Until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.